Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Early on in her work, The Ethics of Ambiguity, Simone de Beauvoir is going to use an expression which she'll provide some analysis and explanation to, to will oneself free. And that is quite important because it's really at the center of the entire project of the work. It is, you could say, the cornerstone of the ethics that she's laying out. And I want to begin by looking at one of the things she says in the very beginning part of that section and one of the things she says at the very end of that section before going into the nitty gritty of her analysis. And the analysis that she's providing there is a preliminary one. It's going to get more, you could say, attention and, you know, additional explanations and parts to it throughout the rest of the work. But what she's providing there is enough to go on. So the the first thing that she says, this is at the very beginning of that section, she tells us that by turning toward this freedom, this freedom of human beings, we are going to discover a principle of action whose range will be universal. She goes on to say the characteristic feature of all ethics is to consider human life as a game that can be won or lost and to teach the human being the means of winning. So she is in effect saying, I'm doing what other ethics have done. I am providing you with the universal principle. Now, it's going to be kind of a strange universal principle when we get to it. And this is why looking at the culmination of this section could, in fact, be quite useful. So she tells us, for the time being, it is enough for us to have established the fact that the words to will oneself free have a positive and concrete meaning if the human being wishes to save their existence as only they themselves can do. Their original spontaneity must be raised to the height of moral freedom by taking taking itself as an end through the disclosure of a particular content. Now that may sound rather abstract and in some respect it is. What is this original spontaneity? Well, this goes to the analyses that she is providing that Jean-Paul Sartre, her partner and collaborator is also providing in other works about the human being as being what we can call an original flow of being into the world. Uh, Heidegger calls this, in some respect, thrownness, right? We are what we are. We exist. Uh, Sartre expressed this by saying existence precedes essence. And so she is working with this same idea herself. She, She thinks that this is actually quite correct. This original spontaneity is freedom, but it's not freedom in, you could say, its full sense. And so she says that if we want to save our existence, we have to do something with this original spontaneity. We have to take that freedom as an end through disclosure of a particular content. What does this disclosure mean? Well, we probably need to talk about that as well. So from the perspective that Sartre and de Beauvoir, and we can also say Heidegger in here, it's essentially a phenomenological perspective. Although, you know, it it doesn't have to be just coming from phenomenology. You can also get this from German idealism and from other sources. We, as the human subject, disclose the being of the world. As a matter of fact, this is already there in Aristotle in Rhetoric Book 2, when he tells us that due to the emotions that 
that we're seeing things, you could call this disclosing the world, we're seeing things differently when we're angry than when we're calm, when we're afraid as when we're confident. So there's a number of different ways in which we disclose the being of the world. And we're not the only ones doing it. Other people are doing it as well. And we can contest those disclosures. There's, there's a lot more to be said there. The point is that we're never just an isolated subject and then only coming to the world. We're always caught up within the world that we have a constitutive role in disclosing. We can decide how we're going to look at it. Another way of talking about this would be framing. So early on in this discussion, she tells us that willing involves a disclosure of being, right? And so willing is choosing. It's making use of something within ourselves to decide things. And she, she tells us to wish for the disclosure of the world and to assert oneself as freedom are one and the same movement. She tells us we will ourselves to be a disclosure of being. And, you know, you don't have to necessarily say, well, you know, none of us actually like sit down and think, should I disclose being option one? Should I not disclose being option two? No, we are already committed, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a volition or willing there. It's part of how we are. So she says, we will ourselves to be a disclosure of being. If we coincide with this wish, we, we win. The fact is the world becomes present by our presence in it. But there's also a perpetual tension to keep being at a certain distance, to not get lost in the world, to be who we are as well. We assert ourselves as a certain kind of freedom over against the world. And you could say, well, the way in which you do that is just by acting as a natural being in the world. You know, you, your stimulus response and you don't choose anything. You're just responding to things. That's not our common experience because, well, you're, you have this illusion of free will. You know, there's a lot of assumptions packed into those claims that people make. And what is our experience? Our experience is that we do choose within environments. We don't choose absolutely in the sense of like deciding to be in a totally different environment or to be totally different than we are, but we do make some sort of choices or volitions. And she goes on and she says that freedom can be taken as an absolute end. That's what is at, at the core of her ethics. She said the, the person who seeks to justify their life must want freedom itself absolutely. They must will freedom itself absolutely and above everything else. So freedom becomes the top value in it, whatever hierarchy of values or rank ordering we have. And freedom is a little bit different though than other things. You know, if you say, well, maybe I should put success or happiness or something like that as the top value or fulfilling my moral obligations. Sure. You always have to specify what those mean. What does happiness actually look like for you? What does success look like for you? It's probably very different for you than it is for me, right? Or what would fulfilling moral obligations be? Even if we have a very formalist, universalist ethics, we still have to particularize, don't we? And freedom has to be realized as well. But freedom is not realized in these concrete situations and choices or in particular projects precisely the same way that the notion of happiness or eudaimonia or success would be because freedom always, you could say, involves itself. We are free to decide what freedom itself means. 
And we have to do that. So she talks about it as not being a ready-made value, which offers itself from the outside to my abstract adherence. Isn't that a, a nice way to frame it? Freedom is something that we can talk about as a value that, you know, some libertarian writes a, a book and you should be free in this respect. That's not full freedom, not from a de Beauvoirian perspective. Freedom exceeds our conceptions of freedom by being freedom. <laughs> So she says that it appears not on the, the plane of facility, but on the moral plane as a cause of itself. Now that requires just a little bit of explanation. Does that mean that it's producing itself? You could say almost like, well, I mean, even classical theism don't say that God produces whatever God is, just that God is an uncaused cause. Freedom is different than that. Freedom does produce itself. You always have a certain amount of freedom. You use that freedom to create more freedom. Freedom intrudes in ways that people often don't want to admit because they, they then they have to don't take responsibility for what use they made of that freedom. So freedom is a cause of itself, but it's a cause of itself through the human being because it is the, the freedom of the human being. It's not an abstract freedom out there in the universe that is causing itself and then you know applies to us. It is in what we do that we produce, we realize freedom. So then she raises a problem and this is a significant one. And a lot of what, what is happening in this section is considering possible objections and then clarifying in relation to them. So she says that Sartre declares every person is free. There's no way of not being free. Does this presence of a, so to speak, natural freedom contradict the notion of ethical freedom? What meaning can there be in the words to will oneself free? Since at the beginning we are free, right? If you want to will yourself to be some thing. Doesn't that imply that you have to like change things? So if you want to will yourself to be healthy, you don't do that as a healthy person. You do that as a sick person. Well, actually, I mean, this goes all the way back to Plato's symposium where we're talking about desire, which is a certain kind of willing, right? And there's this notion where well, you desire what you lack. And then Diodema points out, no, you could actually have something and you desire it. You desire to keep having it. So you could, in fact, desire to keep having freedom. You could will freedom in that sense. And then she says something different, Simone de Beauvoir. She says, this objection would mean something only if freedom were a thing or a quality naturally attached to a thing. If it was something that has a form once and for all, and we could like, you know, scoop out maybe two units of freedom and add them to the, the drink that then we consume and now, now we're free or something like that. Freedom doesn't work like that. She says, if that was the case, one would either have it or not have it. But the fact is it merges with the very movement of this ambiguous reality, which is called existence and which is only by making itself to be to such an extent. It is precisely only by having to be conquered that it gives itself. So what does this mean? She gives us something in a, a sort of, you could say Hegelian or German idealist form. To will oneself free is to effect the transition from nature to morality by establishing a genuine freedom on the original upsurge of our existence. So what is she talking about with this nature morality thing? Well, one way of understanding the human being is that we are a natural being. And insofar as we're a natural being, we are governed by essentially mechanical laws which make our bodies do what they do. And 
and even psychological laws that, that pertain to our, our choices, our desires, our inclinations, our willings. This is straight out Kant, right? But then we also have this possibility of going beyond that, of escaping it. And in Kant, you know, we do that by doing things that are, you know, represent us as universals and also stem from the being that we are, the noumenal being, the thing in itself, the Zaka Zelps that acts. And so, you know, that's one way to look at it. I don't think you actually have to be committed to that in order to make sense of this, but that does help you understand what, what she's getting at. She talks there about this original upsurge and then doing something on top of that. So how do we do that? She says we have to assume our project positively. We have to set ends for ourselves, right? She also talks about this spontaneity, she says, in its facticity. Every person is originally free in that they spontaneously cast themselves in the world. If we, she says, consider this spontaneity in its facticity, in how it appears to us, in what we can say about it, it appears only as a pure contingency. So, I mean, it's purely contingent that I happen to be at this point in time, 50 years old, six foot three, that my hair grown on my face is white, mostly, and that on my head is still mostly brown, and that I'm wearing this tie today. Any of those things are purely contingent. They are the result of my having chosen some of them. Some of them I didn't choose at all. I don't choose to be 50 years old. That's just the way it is. And so we could look at that and we could say, well, this is all just absurd contingency. None of it means anything, really, when we get down to it. And she brings up the clinamen or the swerve of the Epicurean atom and says that this is like that. So the Epicureans, a little bit of background knowledge, in order to preserve freedom in an otherwise mechanistic universe, because they were committed to atomism and saying that everything comes from atoms and the ways in which they interact with each other, they would say, well, every once in a while, for no reason whatsoever, an atom swerves. It just goes out of its normal course. So there's some randomness to it. And this gives us freedom, freedom of ultimately the, the will or the mind. And even back in ancient times, people like Cicero were, were looking at that and they're like, this does not solve the problem at all. This just, just introduces randomness, but it doesn't introduce any meaning or intelligence or anything like that. That's not what we're talking about. And so we have to go beyond this mere spontaneity, she says, in order for this meaning to justify the transcendence which discloses it, it must be founded, which it will never do if I do not choose to found it myself. And she says, we can evade that choice. We can choose not to will ourselves free. We can be lazy, heedless, capricious, cowardly, impatient. We can test the meaning of the project at the very moment we define it. But if we want to be free, we have to assume our projects positively and we have to set ends. We have to choose those ends. She says, it's through this end that it sets itself up that my spontaneity confirms itself by reflecting upon itself. It's no longer pure spontaneity by reflecting upon itself, right? And then she says, by a single movement, my will establishing the content of the act is legitimated by it. So this is an important aspect. There's also an important temporal discussion there as well, where again, she refers to the Epicurean Klinemen, but we could refer to so many other things, including the cliche of, oh man, you should just live for the moment, just be in the moment. And she would say, that's not real freedom. That's not the way to free yourself. 
The existentialists think that a human being does have to have a past, does have to have a future, not just a present. So she says that you can escape the absurdity of the Klinemann only by escaping the absurdity of the pure moment. And existence would be unable to found itself if moment by moment it crumbled into nothingness. And so she goes on and she says, that's why no moral question presents itself to a child as long as they are incapable of recognizing, that is taking stock of themselves reflexively in the past or seeing themselves in the future. It's only when moments of one's life begin to be organized into behavior comportment that one can decide and choose. Otherwise, it's just sort of flailing around, just doing things, right? Not a really human use of freedom. So we have to escape the absurdity of this pure moment. And here she talks about persevering in willing. Now, this is very interesting as well, because this idea actually has a history that I think de Beauvoir herself is not entirely aware of. In Anselm's works, he actually deliberately coins, it's in the De Libertate, he coins a new term, pervele, and he says that this is to will what one wills repeatedly, to persevere, persevere, in willing something, in choosing something. So persevering in willing is important. She says to will is to engage myself to persevere in my will. She also brings up something very interesting here because she talks about some comportments that we would call virtues that one has to choose to display. Patience, courage, fidelity, faithfulness. And that would be ways in which we determinately, but also in a general way, persevere and willing. We have the thing that we are willing and then we do so courageously, patiently, faithfully. So it's not just pure whim and we can't just abandon everything at any moment for this existentialist, at least. She says that I must ceaselessly return to what I've willed and justify it in the unity of the project with, with which I am engaged. Setting up the movement of my transcendence requires I never let it uselessly fall back on itself, that I prolong it indefinitely. And so this is carried out through human action. We also encounter resistance and we encounter failures where we ourselves are not able to will successfully what it is that we want to will. We are unable to, to attain the ends that we've set for ourselves. And so she says, we don't create the world. We succeed in disclosing it only through the resistance what the world opposes to us. The will is defined only by raising obstacles and the contingency of facticity. Certain obstacles let themselves be conquered. Others do not. You know, again, to be an existentialist and think that we, well, we have free will and we have to will ourselves free doesn't mean you can automatically do anything doesn't mean that everything will go as you're you're willing it and she talks about different responses to this so one is to fall into an abstract notion of freedom that is saved in certain types of comportments she says in the face of an obstacle which is impossible to overcome stubbornness which is one of those is stupid if I persist in beating my fist against a stone wall, my freedom exhausts itself in this useless gesture. It debases itself in a vain contingency. She also talks about disillusioned indifference and resignation as ways in which people could do this as well. And she says the power of the human being ceases to be limited because it's annulled. She also then suggests that we could take an end 
that has set ourselves an end in engaging in projects, which is nothing but the free movement of existence. And she gives us an example here, Vincent van Gogh, where when he's no longer able to do the creative work, which is what he centers his life around. That, you know, he's got talent as part of his facticity. He chooses to engage in painting as a practice, as a way of living, as something that he perseveres in, and that it becomes impossible for him. He, he's confined to an asylum. Does this mean that his life as a free person is over? So she says, when the sick Van Gogh calmly accepted the prospect of a future in which he would be unable to paint anymore, there was no sterile resignation. For him, painting was a personal way of life and of communication with others, which in another form could be continued even in an asylum. And now here she brings back the temporal aspect. She tells us, the past will be integrated. Freedom will be confirmed in a renunciation of this kind. It will be lived in both heartbreak and in joy. Affectivity plays a role there. So temporality, affectivity. She also talks about the possibility of revolt. And some revolt, she says, could be a pure negative moment. If that's the case, it remains abstract. It is fulfilled as freedom only by returning to the positive, giving itself as again, she says, a content through action, escape, political struggle, revolution. She acknowledges that there will be cases where this is not possible, that there are situations where the return to the positive cannot happen because the future is radically blocked off. Revolt can then be achieved only in the definitive re rejection of the imposed situation and suicide, right? But she thinks that we can, in fact, in most cases, save our freedom by using our freedom. And she closes in this by bringing up a really key idea, which we'll see her develop elsewhere in this work by saying that just as life is identified with the will to live, freedom always appears as a movement of liberation. It is only by prolonging itself through the freedom of others that it manages to surpass death itself and to realize itself as an indefinite unity. So if we want to save our existence, then we must also work for the freedom of others as well. The meaning of our freedom lies in part in the freedom of of others, which is not something we can master and makes a lot of people anxious if, if that's the case. So this is a robust analysis of what it means to will ourselves free. It's going to attain more and more discussion as the work proceeds, but this is the core and the crux of it. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.